I remember canvassing in a trailer park in South Phoenix and having a conversation with a senora. She was so eager to learn and to get involved. And she started crying in the middle of this one-to-one. And she said, thank you so much for coming today. No one has ever knocked on my door and asked me what I care about or how I see the world. And much less called me a leader. It was mind-blowing that our community's doors never get knocked on. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Tomas Robles and Alejandra Gomez. They are the co-executive directors of Lucha, which is Living United for Change in Arizona. They're fighting and organizing for social, racial, and economic transformation by building power for their community. Tomas and Alejandra spoke about their careers and what led them to found Lucha and what their organization is up to. I found their stories inspiring, and it's a good interview. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Alejandra and Tomas of Lucha. Hey, podcast listeners, do you like learning more about progressive politics? Then you're going to love Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a race-conscious podcast about politics. Join Steve for a conversation that is unapologetic about making clear that the only way Democrats can win is by running towards issues related to race and social justice. Guests have included Stacey Abrams, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, and Michael Tubbs. Fortune Magazine calls it the smartest podcast on race we've found in ages. To listen, visit democracyincolor.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. So, Alejandra and Tomas, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? I am the daughter of immigrants. I currently serve as the co-executive director of Living United for Change in Arizona Lucha. And um, came into the work because my father was undocumented during the Pete Wilson era in California. And so for us... We left California seeking refuge, and we came to Arizona only to find that you can't run from bad policy and bad policymakers. And so when Arpaio started doing his workplace raids, his street checkpoints, that was my call to action. And when I decided to join the movement and fight back. And so ever since then, I have been in the organizing world now probably 14 years, to make sure that our communities know that they have the agency and the power to fight and to live a life that they want to to lead. So really excited to be here today. Let, let me ask you a couple of questions before we get to Tomas. The family that you grew up in with the undocumented father, what did they do? How did they make a living? Yeah, my dad, um, he owned his own transmission shop. And so before then, he was a welder. He started his own transmission shop, and it was going really well. When 
the workplace raid started, I remember getting home from school one day and we lived in a neighborhood and also industrial area. And so Shasta Pools was very close to us. And then a strawberry kind of like field where a lot of workers pick strawberries. And I just remember people running And I remember being confused and my dad worked very near the Shasta pool area and he ran home too. And so that was the day that we sat down as a family and had the conversation that do we stay in California or do we leave? Because he was either going to be detained or deported. We couldn't leave immediately. And so he closed down his business and he started working at Mission Tortillas. That sounds just terrorizing to have to face, frankly, very upsetting. You must have been a a good student to rise as you have. Tell me a little little about your educational path. Oh, man, it was quite terrible. (laughs) 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 And I was a terrible student. (laughs) Um, You know, growing up in the inner city in California uh, in the 80s was a very challenging experience. There were a lot of gangs. And you had a lot of racist teachers. And so I remember going to school every day. And we had this teacher, Mrs. Norse. I still remember her name. And she would hold up my grades in front of the entire class and say, oh, look, she got an F again on our vocabulary tests. And so she was quite intimidating. She was quite terrible. And I would just remember my mom, you know, an immigrant woman, not able to speak the language that would try to advocate for her daughter, try to move her to a different school, and they didn't let her. So my mom would go every single day to class to make sure that this woman not only didn't do this to me, but what we were learning is that she was doing that to other kids in other classes. So one of my best friends, I guess, she was overweight, her sister, and she would terrorize her in the other class. And in these inner city schools, they didn't give a care about us. And so what happened is that parents would go in and complain and the administration would just say, well, you know, this is the teacher and this is who you're going to get. And they wouldn't even change the kids to a different class. And so I had a particularly terrible education. And it wasn't until I got to the sixth grade where I went from straight F's in elementary school to straight A's. I remember my first time seeing an A on my report card in the sixth grade. And I was just like over the moon and realized that it wasn't me. It was the really terrible educators that I unfortunately had to deal with growing up as a kid. So what turned it around for you that, you know, did you get a better teacher? That's an incredible flip, honestly. I mean, I was surprised also. (laughs) Did you start doing your work? Had you just had enough time in English? Um, No. So I was completely fluent in English. I was the baby of the family. My brother, all of my siblings, very intelligent. My brother reads tons of books and my parents are incredibly intelligent. And so I think we have family conversations. And I think really what did it for me is that when I went to junior high, 
I felt safe because I left the elementary school that felt like a nightmare to go to every single day for the five years that I was there. And knowing that no one in the administration really cared about me or the other students. And so when I went to junior high, I then met these educators that were interested in us, that cared about our learning experience, that cared about my opinions. And so for me, I think I became really interested in the subjects and I felt safe to ask questions again. I became very small in elementary school because it was really scary to ask questions and to be seen. And so it was quite incredible to now have teachers that have traveled the world. I'm from Pomona, right? Like I didn't even realize there was a world outside of Pomona. And so these educators really just opened up a whole new world for me. Um, And being able to see my, you know, report card for the first time and see A's on there, I remember just kind of like I was walking home, I was dreading opening it because I didn't want to see terrible grades again. And I opened it and I was just surprised to see A's. And I think that it really changed how I kind of showed up in the world after that. I became much more outgoing, much more talkative in class, much more free than in the last school that I was in. Were you a person that went off to college? I did, but I went to community college first. Mm Mm-hmm. And just tell me a little about that and your path through to getting a degree or not, whatever you did. Yes. So interesting because I've never talked about publicly any of my education experience because it's been so terrible. So (laughs) we're going through this publicly. We came to Arizona and didn't know, you know, where the schools were. And my sister actually found a charter school. So I started off in a charter school here in Arizona that was in downtown Phoenix, and that's where I met my best friend. At this charter school, what we didn't realize is that the principal was embezzling money, so I was only there for a year. After that experience, I went to another charter school because that best friend that I had lost touch with, she left me a message that she was going to another charter school. And... So I followed her there, didn't really see her there until probably six months later because I was doing a different schedule than her because there was two shifts. And all I wanted to do was get out of the education system at all costs. So I was, you know, pulling in both shifts at school. I was getting all of my work done and I just wanted to be done. But I knew that I needed to go to college. I knew that I needed to go to college ever since that teacher in California terrorized me and my family, quite frankly, because my mom had to be there with me every day in class. And I knew that education was going to be the only way forward for me. And so I was able to graduate in two years from high school. And I went straight away to Phoenix College. I was about to turn 17 And I was pretty intimidated going to a university straight away after still being pretty young. And it was the best experience I ever had. I went to Phoenix College. That really felt like a high school to me experience, the high school that I didn't get to participate in. Archaeology was a major that I was really interested in. I got to try those classes. But what I never 
realized that I was missing out on was learning about my culture, learning about my heroes, and learning about the giants whose shoulders I currently stand on now. And for me, that was such a revolutionary experience. When I moved on to the university level, I had teachers that were anarchists and were just blowing my mind with all of these theories and really kind of talking about structural reform at such a young age. And I knew that politics was something that I was interested in, not only because of what I was learning, but because of what I had experienced. So my college and university experience really became kind of this collision of all of my experiences that were so formative for me and why, why I began to volunteer to fight against the injustices that I was seeing out in the world. I think a lot of the people in this sort of activist elite don't realize how crucial like a community college can be in bridging someone like you between maybe not the best public education or mixed education to a real college or as they call them. It's lovely to hear how how that happened for you. Can you just tell me like a little bit about your path from getting out of college to finding your way to Lucha? I've always had, I always realized that I had a spirit of like fighting for what was right. And when I was at the community college, um, what I didn't realize is because I was so young is that there was this proposition called Proposition 300. And so it revoked students from that were undocumented from being able to have um, scholarships to attend school. And within our club at the school, there was this young man who was undocumented and lost his scholarship. He had a soccer scholarship. And our club was like, we need to do something about this because what is happening is not right. And so we began to organize and we flyered the entire school. There was flyers everywhere. And we were able to pack a room and we were able to get the administration to attend, but not the chancellor. And we were calling for the chancellor to attend. And I just remember how powerful that felt to be able to have a space where this young man can have a conversation with the people that stripped this opportunity from him. And then that he can see other people locked in arms with him to fight this injustice. What we learned was that this was because of the legislature and not necessarily because of the school. That experience when I left Phoenix College, because that was also a moment for me as well. I was talking to my counselor and I had already been three years at the community college level because I loved it so much. I still had more classes that I wanted to take. I was in no hurry. But my counselor sat me down and she said, you're at a crossroads now because there are some students that don't leave the community college. And so you're at this decisive point, whether you're going to stay at the community college or you're going to move on to the university. And, you know, growing up in Pomona and growing up in the 80s and 90s, we, I worried a lot about being a statistic because that was kind of like the topic of conversation. And so I knew a lot of what I didn't want to do, but I don't think I had the freedom or the space or the analysis to think about what it was that I did want. 
So I moved on to the university because I knew I didn't want to be a statistic and I knew that I wanted to make it out. And so going to the university, I met really incredible teachers. And again, this injustice was happening with the women of Juarez who were being murdered. At this point, it was both government that were allowing women to be murdered that worked in the maquilas. And so we organized this humongous event called Gender Justice on the Border. And so teachers and students came together and we did this massive art project and research project. And we honored the 400 women that had been murdered. So we had dresses with the pink crosses all over the lawn of the university. And so along the way, there's always been these reminders for me. And I didn't realize that I was already organizing that bringing people together and telling the stories of the people that are both survivors and that were hurt by injustice was so important. Fast forward, I'm working at the state and I'm helping folks that have serious mental illness become gamefully employed as a counselor. I'm starting to see what's happening with Sheriff Arpaio. I look at my pay stub and it's being signed by Jan Brewer, the terrible governor at the time, very anti-immigrant. And it's kind of like these moments collided in my life where I went to Art Walk and at Art Walk, there was this woman standing on the corner and she was waving a flyer and she was saying, who wants to get rid of Sheriff Joe? And that woman completely transformed my life. Her name is Raquel Teran. And she is the party chair now, and she is running for Arizona State Senate. She's currently a House representative, but she was a community organizer, and she organized me. And from that experience, I want to say that was 2008. And so that was my entry point into what is the work. I didn't know anything about organizing, but she had me organizing house meetings. And I remember she left to D.C. and she's like, you have to organize 50 house meetings and this is going to be what the scripts are. And these are the phone calls that you need to make. And I was there. I was making all of the calls. But from that point, the fight started getting worse because now it wasn't just Sheriff Arpaio that was going after our communities, but now the legislature was going to enact this bill. And. This bill made it okay for our communities to be profiled. SB 1070, this bill allowed police officers, if they saw somebody with a silk t-shirt, to stop them. If they saw people that had Virgin Marys um, on their attire or their car, that they can stop them and profile them and ask them for their papers. So fast forward, it's 2010, and... We are doing this vigil at the Capitol. I have my clipboard in hand because we're also doing voter registration while we're praying at the Capitol in the evenings. And that's where I met the Moss. The story about us and our organizing trajectory is in 2010, in the middle of that fight, it was a whirlwind moment. Tomas and I did not know each other. We worked for the same organization. We were in different regions. And he and I never met until after election day, because we were so busy. We were really just with our teams, having conversations with community members. 
I would go and canvas a neighborhood. And if somebody was very eager, I would say, do you want to just come walk with me? Come walk with me right now. Let's go start getting people to register to vote. It was a really exciting moment because people were really paying attention um, politically to what was happening. They really wanted to fight back. So we had the vigil happening at the state capitol. We were doing voter registrations in the afternoon. And then in the evenings, we were doing Know Your Rights trainings because the raids were still happening. After that was done, we were sustaining the vigil at the Capitol. So we were going back and sleeping on the Capitol lawn. So it was like this sustained action that really has meant so much to Arizona because a lot of the leaders that came from that moment are still in the movement today, leading organizations and building the Arizona for the next 30 years. I found your uh, story very moving and... I'm glad that you are in the fight. I'm going to turn to Tomas now, even though I, you know, we could talk quite a bit more about, about that path. Tomas, tell me your biography and answer some of the same questions I asked your co-executive director. Where were you born? What kind of family? How'd you grow up? What kind of educational path? How'd you find your way to Lucha? Hi again. Uh, I guess for the podcast purposes, Tomas Robles, co-executive director of Lucha, looking at it for change in Arizona. Um, I was born and raised here in the state of Arizona. I was born in Tucson, which is the second largest city. But once I was born, I immediately was moved down to the border. My family is um, one of those families in which the border crossed us many, many years ago. Since then, we've always straddled both sides of it. My great-grandmother was born in Sierra Vista, Arizona. My grandmother was born in Mexico. My dad was also born in Mexico, and then I was born in the U.S. But the, the number one thing that always stayed true was that we always just saw the border as just a line we crossed to do our day-to-day living. Living in Bisbee, Arizona, Manaco, Arizona, you kind of understand that where we live is very different than other places. I mean, you're, you're constantly surrounded by border patrol. You're constantly having to explain yourself in terms of what you're doing, where you're going, because the agents there have free reign in terms of how you may talk to people. And so for us, understanding what racial profiling and what surveillance from, from authorities was always like a normal thing that we had to learn. Um, and when we ended up moving from Sierra Vista, we moved to Phoenix, the largest city here. When I was about in first grade here in the city, we moved around a lot. So for my school, it was a sense of just not being able to feel like a place of belonging because I'd be in a school for three, four, five, six months, and then we'd move again. And so I never, it wasn't until I was around 12 where we finally landed in a place where I could be in school for more than one semester. Uh, So mine was a lot of loneliness and I kind of reverted to, to school as the only way because making friends at school wasn't, wasn't a normal thing. Finally landed on the West side of Phoenix when I was 12 and that finally enabled me to have a normalized version of school. So um, for me, it was always books and sports because, you know, you can move schools, but your little league team stayed the same, at least for that year. And so my parents would still be able to drive me sometimes to the, to the teams. 
It was when I was 12 when there was also uh, a situation that happened that really kind of opened my eyes in terms of what Arizona thinks of folks like, like us. Every year, we would still take vacations to go see our grandparents that lived at the border still in, in Naco, Arizona. And so back then, there wasn't a lot of stuff in between the two major cities. It was mostly just desert. And so one time we were left stranded on the road in between Tucson and Phoenix uh, because we had suffered two flat tires. And obviously most, most cars only have one. So we were still waiting for help. And, you know, this was, I think, 94. Cell phones weren't really a thing just yet. And a police officer ends up seeing us and pulls up behind us. And my dad gets out of the car speaking broken English, but he's, he's basically telling the guy that he's happy that to see him, that we've been stranded for a couple hours and we're running out of water and could really use some help. The water part is important because it was June in Arizona. And if you've ever been to Arizona, it's about 107 degrees to 110 degrees in the middle of the summer. And so police officer gets there, listens to my dad. His first response is, you know, do you have drugs or weapons in the car? And then orders my dad back in the vehicle um, and demands license and registration. My dad gives it to him and then proceeds to not talk to him, but just look around the vehicle, try to inspect the tires, look for any, you know, activity. And then he decides just to open the back of our trunk because we had an SUV, so you open the back door. Um, and immediately I turn around and just start looking at him. And as he opens the door, my dad gets out of the vehicle and you know just shouts out, hey, like, why are you doing this? Like, you could see we're a family of five. We're not here to cause any trouble. Why are you messing with us? And you know the co- police officer then pointed to his gun, told him that I needed you to put your hands on the hood and not move. And so he forced my dad to put his hands on the hood of the car. So if you've ever touched metal on 107 degrees, it's not the nicest feeling. And he proceeded to look through the trunk, made a mess, threw clothes around, diapers, toys, looking for whatever he could find. And the entire time ignoring my dad's words and pleas to stop doing what he was doing and we needed help. And the entire time, I just remember staring at the officer who, to this day, about 5'10", slim build, completely brown police officer's uniform, red hair, and the aviator sunglasses. Like, it, it will never leave my mind. And I can just remember thinking back to school because I, I paid a lot of attention in school. And, like, I I tended to listen to my teachers and what they said because, you know, that was my outlet. And in school, you're taught police officers that to protect you, to, like, to serve and to be there for you. And then here's this officer treating us like we're criminals when, in fact, we needed help. When he was done, he didn't put any of his stuff back. He didn't apologize for making a mess. He didn't say, okay, now that you're clear, how can I help? He he just turned around, got in his car and left. And so we were kind of left wondering what had just happened, feeling violated, feeling like we were made to feel like we didn't belong. And that was kind of the first taste of what it felt like to be othered in the state of Arizona, mainly because at the border, you you live in a community and you're, you're used to it, but you always think that when the further away you get from the border, the less likely you're gonna deal with racism until it happens. And so that kind of really was, was a moment in which I knew that I, the work that I did 
that whatever that was, was going to be in a way to make sure that that experience was never going to happen to me or family or anybody I know again. I guess I can just keep going on the timeline or, or do jumps, but... Actually, could you do that? I, I mean, how did you get from starting to have that kind of awakening to some really unpleasant stuff about the world to finding your way to Lucha, which is one of the organizations really working to remedy that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting path. I think you know, got got through elementary, got through school, um, started college, and then nine eleven happened. Um, and for me, nine eleven happened at a time where I didn't feel supported at school. And at, at, I was a first generation student at the university I was at, Arizona State University's main campus, which was fifty thousand students at the time, and and no real support systems for students like me, you know, males, especially at the university. And so I kind of felt alone. And when 9-11 happened, it took me back to the time when I was 12, where I was like, well, this is an attack. I feel like I should do something about this attack and, and serve the community. So I ended up joining the military. Once I got out the military, after five years, I started back at the university at ASU, completing my degree. And, you know, that was right smack in the middle when all the anti-immigrant sentiment was really exploding and Arizona was looking at finding ways to punish immigrants within the state. Um, and a year after I enrolled at ASU, Senate, Senate Bill 1070 ends up passing. And I think more so than any, it finally connected me with that experience when I was 12. The 9-11 experience felt like I needed to fight for the safety of my community as a country. But this was the first time where I noticed, okay, this this is how a direct attack looks on the community that I'm in. And with that bill, it basically said that someone that looks like me or me would have to prove our right to live here. And that to me was just awful. I knew students that were involved, but when the protests happened, I, I went myself to the state capitol and just wandered around and talked to a number of people who were there, angry, protesting. And I just ended up walking to a table asking how I can get involved. And the person at the table signed me up. I put in my email and all that. And I started registering voters the next day as a voter registration volunteer. For months, that was that was what I did. I would go to school. I would do my a veteran's job that I had, and then I would go and register voters. And after about three or four months, the organization hired me as a community organizer. And that's where, you know, I ran into Alex and so many of our other co-workers there that we never saw for longer than five minutes, quick introduction, and then we were out. And that kept building and building. And, you know, at the end of that campaign in 2010, when we registered about 15,000 voters, and lost completely in the election, we still felt like we were building something that could bear fruit in the next few years. After that, I traveled working inside the Democratic establishment in DC, working in Congress. And then after some time there, I came back to Arizona in 2012 to fight against Arpaio, who was this horrific racist sheriff um, who was caught by the Department of Justice and racially profiling folks from 2000, I believe, six until uh, he left office in 2016. And for us, 
uh, it reunited Alex and I on the campaign. Myself working for one organization that was part of a partnership and Alex overseeing the entire campaign as a whole. After that, I kind of just landed at Lucha. The old, old executive director had reached out. By this time, I had had my time to work in organizing and I thought my time was over. I was looking at new opportunities when she reached out and asked to meet. Um, and we met for coffee and she asked for a quick plan on how I would organize um, a certain project around getting education. And so I, I basically wrote down my ideas, thought that was it. And the next day she called me and offered me a job to work as organizing director of Lucha. So that was in early 2013. Um, and that's how I ended up at the organization. Could you guys tell me exactly what is Lucha? Describe the organization. How big is it? What is its mission, et cetera? So Living United for Change in Arizona started in 2010 as a response to the Senate Bill 1070. It started with a focus on immigration reform and had a staff of two people. Um, and Alex and I have grown it into a statewide organization whose pillar issue is economic justice. What that umbrella looks like in terms of democracy, um, immigration, criminalization, environment, and a variety of issues. Uh, that tiny organization with Spunk has grown into um, one of the most influential groups here in the state with offices in four of the largest counties uh, in Arizona, including a border county. We have passed one major piece of legislation, Proposition 206, that raised the minimum wage to $12 in 2020. It's currently at $12.80 and provided five days of earned sick time, one of the few states in the nation that has a mandatory sick time policy. Since then, we've been fighting to ensure that the people that we work with and for have the voice to change the state in the direction that we all feel that it deserves to go. Alex, I have been for almost five years interviewing people across a range of progressive leadership positions. And so many people have mentioned your group to me in that time. So I'm really happy to finally catch up with you and learn a little bit more. But why do you think people across the country who follow organizing who think highly of people who are in the trenches like that, keep saying your group is a great example of this. Well, that is so, uh, it warms my heart um, to hear that. And it's an honor, quite frankly. Before I came to Lucha, I was working at United We Dream as a deputy organizing director, and I was there for a couple of years. And I remember thinking, because, you know, unfortunately, the, one of the other reasons that Tomas and I were unable to stay in Arizona is organizing, there was very few spaces to be able to organize. Now it's, there's spaces, there's more or infrastructure, there's more organizations, you can make this a career to fight justice, which is quite incredible and it still blows my mind that this is where we're at in Arizona from all of the years of building. I remember after the defeat, we were able to get DAPA passed 
but John Boehner would not bring up the then super progressive um, immigration package that we were really hopeful was going to pass. And I remember just kind of looking at the national map because I was working at a national organization and really having this moment of grounding that the way that we win federally is building at a state level and building up a strong organization, a strong base of people that are going to truly contest for power, that are going to do it unapologetically, and that it's going to be relationship by relationship, being able to tell our stories and being able to lead in a way that isn't in service of a democratic machine. The only service of it is for our communities to feel their power. Um, and to be able to get the policies that our communities deserve. And so Tomas was working at Lucha, and he asked me to be a part of the board. And after years of conversation, he asked me to join him as co-executive director. And there was a promise that we made to each other that I think is really important, because what we told each other, I remember I was in my little D.C. cubicle, it was late and I was feeling deflated because we weren't able to bring S744 for a vote um, on immigration. And we promised each other that we were going to build an organization that was for the people and by the people. And I think when folks think of Lucha, they see our members. They are seeing that what we're trying to do is stay true to organizing and that organizing and the relationships that we're building, the stories that our members tell, the young people that are part of the organization. Most of our organizers have been with the organization since day one. Our youth organizers now started with us when they were in high school. We push the boundaries in a very unapologetic way. We will take a step back to when our organizers, you know, COVID was a really tough moment, but Arizona's political landscape is incredibly challenging. Every year it's this uphill battle with the legislature, and we have had some tremendous victories by leveraging everything that we have learned about organizing. And I think that when people think of our organization, they see that, you know, the way that we have been able to shift the landscape as Arizona is showing up as two authentic leaders. I was not a straight A student. I'm not the model kid at all in any way, shape, or form, but I was a young woman searching for justice from what happened to my dad and my family. I do see, when I look at our members, you know, I often see my mom. I see, you know, when she was um, a caregiver, and we have so many señoras that do caregiving, that do housekeeping, and we want these women to be able to have justice in their life, to have, you know, a day of peace, a day of rest. And so the policies that we move forward are in their voice. We will not move forward a policy without having the input of our members. So sometimes our policies, our listening sessions will take six months to a year for us to craft it in the voice of our members. I've talked to a couple people recently from immigrant justice world in California. And California is a state that has turned around the way they treat immigrants since, since Pete Wilson. They have 
really become more progressive. There's always more that they could do, but they've really transformed what's going on there. How far short are you in Arizona of getting to that level? I would say that California, I think, is a model. But I also think that in Arizona, we're trying to do things differently. We joke about it, but it's I think it's really true, is that we're not trying to turn Arizona blue. We're trying to turn Arizona lucha blue. And so that means that we don't have a party alignment in that we think that a politician will be our savior. What we're trying to do is build up people to be able to advocate for themselves, that they know that they have agency to be able to voice their concerns, to voice their vote, to keep participating and stay involved and have a seat at the table. And that is ultimately what's even going to push some Democrats that sometimes don't come along. And what we're seeing in California and other blue states is that you're fighting with Democrats who are supposed to be your closest allies to get some of the real policies that are often controversial, you know, but those are the policies that matter to our communities that will bring real relief to the most impact and marginalized communities. As an example, when we were trying to pass a minimum wage here in Arizona, it wasn't until like the last few months when the proposition was polling very, very well that Democrats began to endorse it. And the minimum wage ballot initiative was polling better than most candidates in Arizona, even on the Democratic side. And so for us, it's not about Democrats, it's about the people and bringing them into the fold and putting people at the center of decision making to push all legislators to do the right thing and show up for our communities. Hey, Tomas, what does that mean to you, Lucha Blue? Lucha Blue means a, a type of political power that's been built that forces the issue instead of begs the issue. Meaning that we no longer are in a position in which we are hoping that something gets passed. We built up the enough influence so that it's seen as a strategic and a thoughtful policy idea. And so for us, Lucha Blue means, as Alex was mentioning, a shift from depending on a certain party to save us to the party recognizing that they're in a position that they're in because of the people and organizations that put them there. And that means them doing the will of the people instead of the will of the special interest. Because the ultimate special interest is the people, the people that are going to be affected by these policies. And so for us, Lucha Blue means things like a more equitable education system that doesn't cost tens of thousands and not hundreds of thousands to get educated. A economic social safety net that provides the right resources for the community members that live here in the state. And we're not just talking about good jobs, but we're also talking about social services that make sure that folks have the education handy for their children, that there's environmental um, changes in these policies as we live in a state that gets progressively hotter every year. Every year is a record-breaking summer. Every year is record-breaking utility costs. It's a state that embraces the uh, resources that are natural, like sunlight, um, and puts corporate interest in a place where they can no longer breed corruption within the state legislature. To us, Lucha Blue means that the people of Arizona, the ones we service, the ones that are the most vulnerable, 
have the same level of impact and influence that corporate lobbyists have inside the chambers of the legislature. And so for us, that's a 30-year structural reform, a multi-decade structural reform that will lead us into the future long after Alex and I are gone. So explain to me, either of you or both, how, as a community organizing group like this, how do you get power and how do you wield power? The only way to build power right now for us is having daily conversations with our community members about what it is that they need to feel like they are heard here in the state. Power is built when those that seek it see the influence that they can have in a positive way. And for us, it's about getting folks the real-time resources that they need while creating a sense of loyalty in terms of working together to achieve the goals of the state as a whole. And so for us, building power has meant addressing the needs of those today while working to achieve monumental goals tomorrow. I'll pass it to Alex. Yeah, I would say that I'll share a couple of stories because people need to be reminded that we have power. People need to be reminded that they are leaders. I remember, you know, canvassing in a trailer park in South Phoenix and having a conversation with a senora. She had to have been like in her 60s. And so we were talking about politics, right? We're having like a mini one-to-one from that canvassing experience. I probably went a little too long for the back-in-the-day standards of canvassing. But I felt it was so important to connect with her because she was so eager to learn and to get involved. And she started crying in the middle of this one-to-one. And I remember like, oh, crap, what did I do? What just happened? And she said, thank you so much for coming today. No one has ever knocked on my door and asked me what I care about or how I see the world. It still gets me teary. And much less called me a leader. And so I remember that experience being so formative for me because it was mind-blowing that our community's doors never get knocked on. We don't poll our communities We don't, you know, there's so much investment that could go into, you know, building the Latino electorate into organizing impacted communities. The resources are not put there. So we have to invest in ourselves. And I think that, you know, that's a part of building power. We also built our curriculum around naming what the systems of oppression are for for us. And so white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy are the main culprits that we have identified as a systems of oppression. And so we're, you know, going through our curriculum at the end of our assemblea and at the very last session, one of our señoras stands up and she says, this is the first time that I have ever felt like I could be the president of the United States. She's an undocumented woman. And she said, I feel so powerful today. And I'm going to continue to invite my neighbors. I'm going to continue to have the conversations. I'm going to go out with you all to register voters. Right? Like that power 
of self and being able to transmit that to others in your network and being able to pull people out and bring them along, that's power to me. And that's really what's at the crux of what we do. It's people-centered. And just the last story that I'll end with is we do major campaigns and we do very small campaigns because all the campaigns matter. When we're saying our people are living intersectional lives, it is so true from very big issues like the minimum wage and really needing to be able to put food on the table to a group of women that are members being concerned about their children getting run over on their way to school. So our organizing director, Stephanie Maldonado, began to bring together these women in house meetings every week. And what they identified was that they needed speed bumps in the neighborhood because cars were just zooming past. So it's those little victories that turn into these tiny stepping stones And those women later on helped us fight for a minimum wage increase at a state level, right? It's reminding people that they can change the circumstances in their lives from these tiny moments to these major statewide moments um, and that they are at the helm of it. There's lots of power centers in a state like Arizona. There are ones that are allied with you. Often there are ones that are arrayed against you frequently. How do you fit in on the progressive side? What are the other groups and power centers? How would someone understand Arizona from the outside in terms of how it's organized politically and beyond? One of the number one things we need to remember is Arizona politically from an infrastructure point of organizing, at least on the left, is very young. Um, In 2010, there were no organizations that focused on power building, organizing and getting people together to to engage in the political process at a real level, especially amongst people of color and and young people here in the state. And so I think one of the many things to learn is that we're in our adolescence when it comes to really understanding how organizing can fit from a long term. There's still a large pushback of conservative ideals because we're the state that essentially created conservative politics as we know it today. Barry Goldwater started here and he created this conservative notion that permeates throughout all of Arizona and continues to do so. And so for us, Arizona is a place where the people are aligned in the values that we have been able to showcase. But there's still a machine that refuses to do the will of people because they are so embedded with corporate interests here. And so Arizona is a place where you see a lot of sophistication from the ground, from the grassroots, while still trying to get those political parties that we work with and those electeds to see the potential of what we can build if we start to respect and understand the organizations that are doing the important work down here. Um, We still have a long way to go, but the level of power that we're building is the type that, you know, to use a a word that I used to use in certain videos, everlasting power. That's a big goal that we have as multiple organizations. And Lucha, we feel, serves 
as a great distributor of power and resources when they come our way because we feel like a centralized organization isn't going to help move Arizona forward. It's going to be a um, a all all reaching level of organizing and power building by a slew of multiple organizations that work on multiple issues. You've kind of touched upon this, but like power, while it exists in so many different forms, including you and your members, it also often gets expressed politically, right? It often comes down to a vote in a state legislature or a city council or uh, another political body full of elected representatives of mostly of the two main parties. How do you think about that relationship with typically the Democratic Party, but not always, that you folks have? And how do you navigate that? I would say that we're we're all trying to figure out how to wield power. What are the levers that we have? For grassroots organizations, people are our power. They're the engine. We have um, employed different tactics in order to be able to influence outcomes at the legislature or during an election. We have our lobby days. We have our constant lobbying. We have a policy team within the organization. We have members that are at the ready whenever we need to, you know, go and testify or do an action, sign in in opposition of a bill. When we're thinking of launching campaigns or endorsing candidates, our members have to be first and foremost in that process in order for us to move forward with a campaign or an endorsement. But we also have a lobby team. We have an organizing team. We've built lots of different um, levers for us to be able to leverage fighting against the gross overreach that is happening at a legislative level. And so we do fight at the legislative level. Part of our strategy is to be able to flip the legislature so we, we function also within electoral spaces. The only way that we have also been able to be where we are now in Arizona is because we have done the work of expanding the electorate. So for the past 10 years, without stopping, we have done voter expansion work. So that means every single year we're doing voter registration or we're contacting the voters that we've registered to vote and we're inviting them into the political process. One-to-one, one-to-one to to an action to join us at the Capitol, to join us for our Asamblea or for our Congreso or for our Lobby Day. And so all of those moments, you know, it's, it's part of holding the present moment, the political reality that we currently have, which is we have to be on defense. But what we're so good at in Arizona is dreaming big and living in the possibility. And that's the only way I think we were able to get past these, you know, terrible 10 years with anti-immigrant legislation, anti-democracy legislation, anti-woman, anti-choice, anti-trans. There's just every single type of terrible, sinister legislation that you could think of has come out of this Petri dish in Arizona. What we're looking forward to now is 
We have built an ecosystem that is based on abundance. We have built an ecosystem that says we're not leaving any single organization out of funding, out of strategy. Um, if you're a progressive and you want to change the state, let's start looking to the next 30 years. Let's start building our budgets for all of us to be able to participate at the level that you can as an organization, whether it be like massive scale or smaller scale, it all matters. And I think that that approach coupled with, you know, we've just built an organization that we're really excited about. It's called Activate 48. And so it's a formation built on trust. And it, that is truly centering organizing and thinking of Arizona in the next 30 years. And that includes Chispari, Sonami, Familia Vota, Our Voice, Our Vote, which is a Black-led organization, and us. Because the only way to be able to combat the right and its attacks are to be able to be visionary about what our future looks like and what it is that we want. You have referred to sort of the development as being in the adolescence. It sounds like you're a little past that to me, but how much do you look to other states which have analogous power building organizing groups, for example, or for collaboration? You want to try that, Tomas? We really don't, to be honest. Um, we we look to leaders that we have learned from, and we've definitely taken methods, but we feel like Arizona's in a very unique position from a lot of states. Um, I think if you're looking for similarities of, state, of states, we can look towards Georgia, who's kind of going through a similar um, experience of building political power, seeing attacks at a state level to try and mitigate that power building and folks trying to make sense of the system while still being outnumbered. Arizona right now currently is outnumbered in terms of Republican and Democratic voters. And so for us in Arizona, as we, every year we build this political power, we register these voters, we build these coalitions, we still have a legislature that is a majority um, in opposition to the work that we're doing. And so it's a very difficult balancing trick to build power as you are on the defensive each and every year. And so what we look at is how can we take defensive battles and add some offensive tactics so that while we're defending against these policies, we're showcasing a light on the corruption and the poor priorities that our state has. And so um, our vision and our collaboration, I think one of the major ways is how we collect data, how we process the data that we've collected uh, from our members, and then how we take that information and make it real. And I think one of the things we've looked for with other states and other partners is how to do that most efficiently so that we have a deep, thorough understanding. Another way we've done it is when we've looked at policies, we've looked at certain ones that were implemented at a state and at other states and other cities and see if we have the opportunity to um, pass those same policies at a city or state level. The problem with us is that you don't always have power to pass legislation, even if you have favorable numbers at the city level. So we still are focused on putting the right type of electives that are going to have bold visions to get these things passed. And so far, I think overall as a movement in general, the democratic side of politics 
is still very weary about seeking really bold, progressive policies. Looking forward for the next, I don't know, between now and the midterm, what are your priorities? What are you trying to make happen? I hope it is very clear to the progressive ecosystem now how important it is to be able to operate at all cylinders and hold the line at every level. I think Arizona is a perfect example of you can go blue in a moment of desperation, political desperation, which I think the country was definitely there during the Trump administration. And people were very acutely voting for their survival and participating at that level and still lose a state because you did not hold the line. And so that's exactly what happened. We won federally in Arizona, but at a state level, you know, there was a calculation that was made that we did not need to invest as much amongst other progressives. Grassroots organizations um, were saying that we need to be able to hold the line also at a state level. But I think um, hopefully now it is very clear that when you lose at a state level, the state level is a stronghold for your democracy. And right now we have a copycat bill that came out of Texas that is about to make it into a ballot referral. So voters are going to get to vote for Arizonans now having to provide another form of ID. In Texas, the horrible outcome that this had was that there was a 40% voter drop-off. So in Arizona, we have the permanent early voting list, which allows for Arizonans to participate from home, to take their time with the ballot, really research the issues, vote with conversations with family, and make really informed decisions and mail in your ballot. There's another bill in question currently that just passed the House and is on to the Senate that would eliminate community organizations from being able to register, to sign people up, to check the box when we're out registering people to vote for the permanent early voting list. Our communities participate at an 80% on this mechanism. They trust it. That's aimed right at you and your colleagues, huh? That's right. Absolutely. And so what we keep failing to see is that state and federal elections in the outcomes that happen in the state have a direct effect on the federal elections. They're incredibly tied together. And so for us, that is not remiss. For us, We're holding the line at a state level. We're focusing at a state level to make sure that we have a down ballot all the way up the ballot approach. Because if we don't win at a state level, the outcome may be that we no longer have a democracy in Arizona. The outcome in Arizona around education is that in the next five years, we are not going to have principals anymore in our public schools. We're going to have CEOs, right? So The stakes are incredibly high politically here in this state. And again, Arizona is often a Petri dish. And so that means that we have to enter into rigor and solidarity with our partners, but be able to fight um, in a terrain that is incredibly complex and shifting constantly. Boy, it sounds like uh, quite a challenge that you guys face. Is there a question that I haven't asked that I should have? 
No, not that I can think of, no. You two are people I would love to keep chatting with all day. I know you got work to do. So I want to like relieve you of having to answer any more of my questions, but I do appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to say? For those listening, like pay attention to what's happening in your state legislatures. Find out more about Lucha at luchaaz.org. And if you live in Arizona or a neighboring state, please join us in the fight. We all have a huge undertaking in front of us and we need to keep fighting to ensure democracy here in the U.S. is protected. And the only thing that I have to add is I know it feels like the odds are against us. I know it feels like the mountain is really hard to climb. But with this small but mighty ecosystem that is in Arizona, in Georgia, in Virginia, in Michigan, there's incredible organizations that are fighting the good fight and have leveraged some incredible victories for communities. So we have a lot to celebrate also. And so I think we should stay grounded in that hope, in that vision of the future and continue organizing. Absolutely. That was Tomas and Alejandra. They are at www.luchaaz.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.